Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. Uh, good morning. If you need your Bibles, uh, just let the ushers know they'll be coming through. You're going to need to open up to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. So last week, uh, we started a series on control, the ways that we try to control our fear causes to want to grasp. And um, so I had a situation a little ways ago uh, with one of my children, and I have this deal with my children where I have to ask their permission, and then I have to ask their permission if I can use their name or if they need to be anonymous. So this child said, yes, but I need to be anonymous. So I'm going to do my best, and if I let it slip and you say something, I'm holding you responsible. So um, I have this child, and uh, this person, we were, we were out and about, and we saw somebody that we knew, and um, we're not really close with them or anything, we're just out and around. And so this child goes, oh, is that the greedy family? Now, that's not their last name. She meant, like, they're greedy. And I was like, whoa, where'd you get that from? And she said, well, our neighbors told me. Did I say she? (laughs) Told you can't say anything. So this person, this person uh, said, well, the neighbors told me. Was that the only people that told you? Well, my siblings They don't know the word siblings, so they didn't actually use that word, but the other two children, well, they told me the same thing. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I have a hard time with this family, too. They don't get along with anybody. I mean, they have a hard time. And I'm thinking, it probably came from me also, and this child just doesn't want to roll me under the bus with everybody else that they just rolled under the bus. But the thing is, is that I realized as we sat there and we had a conversation about it, and I said, you know, they're not greedy. Um, they just have a hard time getting along with people, and they have issues just like the rest of us. And as I'm saying that, I thought, one, I don't know if this child's really listening to me. We're just nodding. But what was placed in this child's head at this young age is going to stick with this child. This is one of the bricks that this child is going to put in place to develop a system of how to look at the world, how to look at people, specifically this family, how to look at, uh, there's other bricks that this child is putting in place on how God views things, on ideas. And these bricks start to take shape. And let's say 10 years down the road that this child is interacting with his family, most likely this person's not going to interact with his family because the decision has been made. They're on the outside. There is a prejudice in place. And... My fear as I was interacting in this situation was, I think I probably contributed to this. Because this family, this, the things that they've done to us specifically has caused me to go, oh, well, you're on the out now. And I don't know if I use the word greedy, but you do something to kind of push them out. And what I want us to look at today is the way in which we are prejudiced. And I know you're thinking you're not prejudiced. Oh, you are. We all are. We all have opinions. And here's the crazy thing. As the church, 
It has been scientifically studied. And we as the church are more prejudiced than those that don't go to church. Not a really cool thing for us to hear, but let's just be honest about it and deal with it and not necessarily try to figure out why, but figure out where we go from here. Um, So I'm not going to take you through all the different studies. I want to look at some studies, and then I want us to look at us as a church, and then we're going to jump into the word. Um, But when you hear this, I remember the first time someone told me, everybody's prejudiced. And I was like, no way, man. I grew up with black people and Mexican people and Asians. There's no way. I include everybody. So I was like, you're, you're wrong. And so I fought it because I had my bricks in place that I'm not prejudiced. I'm a very open person. So you're unaware of your own prejudices. Well, these studies, these are some of the things that they proved. Um, and here's some of the results. I'll give you some other details. Um, that prejudice provides feelings of importance and worth by deeming others unworthy. And so one of the things they found out that as a church is that you have these beliefs and if you think that you're part of God's family, well, if you're part of God's family, then there must be people on the outside who aren't part of God's family, right? And you don't think through that, but that must mean there's people on the outside. Um, Prejudice makes people feel like winners by letting them come out on top. You don't think about that, but this salvation story is so powerful, we win, right? I mean, it's the truth. You go to the back of the Bible, I think we all know that we win, and so there's this concept of winning which just feels so good. Like, I'm one of the most competitive people I know, and I've grown up that way because when you win, it just feels good to finish up on top. Um, One of the things they found out is that um, white middle-class Christians in the United States, um, they... They are the most, they struggle the most with intolerance, prejudice, and bigotry. Um, and all churches, um, they're, for many of the people in that church, they use it for themselves. We use it sometimes for an occasional ceremony, for family convenience, for personal comfort. It's something to use but not to live. Um, And then here's a direct quote that I want to read that's very powerful. This was, like, there's five or six studies that would bore you to death, but um, this is what one of the results said. It says, so if they, meaning us, and these are from believers, by the way. These are, many of these studies are done by Christians who are studying themselves. And so these Christians are studying themselves, and they're a crew of people, and they said, so if we are self-doubting and insecure, then prejudice enhances our self-esteem. So if we're self-doubting and insecure, and pretty much we all are, then this prejudice helps our self-esteem. And religion provides security. If we are guilt-ridden, so if you have guilt and you struggle with that, then prejudice provides a scapegoat. Now you don't realize you're doing that, but it's... That's what we do in psychology. We understand that we do that. And religion provides relief. And if we fear failure, then prejudice explains by postulating that there are menacing outgroups, people on the outside against us, and that our faith holds out a reward. Now, this is what we have to do. We have to look at ourselves honestly. Like it says in the Psalms, like, 
Search me, O oh God. And so these group of people are saying, search us, Lord, are we prejudiced? So to give you an example, we're a church for people who don't go to church. So if you're a church that, for people who don't go to church, you're going to try things nobody else is trying. And so we've taken all these things and saying, Lord, is this from you or is it not? Or have we built bricks around our faith and, and taken in things that you haven't told us to do? And when you do things that nobody else is doing, then that thing inside of us springs up. So, for example, I'll share some of the things that sprung up inside of me. Um, one was on our men's retreat, we, we got together and we said, look, we're going to lay everything before the Lord and say, what do you want us to do and what's permissible, what's not, what should we do to help these men from our church and from outside to, to have an environment where they can meet you. And so one of the things that was brought up was, should we have beer there? And inside of me, I didn't grow up in a church. Inside of me, though, there was that thing, even though I didn't grow up in church, going, you can't do that. You can't do that because beers and that stuff's not supposed to be there at those places. But then the question, and I didn't say those things. I'm just listening and nodding. And then um, someone brought up a very good point. He goes, well, do you guys have these beers at your home? Is it wrong? And we'd already done, we'd done these Bible studies and looked through it and realized that, that, that uh, alcohol was a gift from the Lord, but it can be abused. We looked at that. We went through a series on that. So I was like, okay, but there's that sense of, but we're not supposed to do that. That's a prejudice, right? We've made a decision, not based on anything the word of God says, but on the things that we've kind of been told and taught and carried down with us, much like, hey, that family's greedy. Hey, you shouldn't do this there. Another one was um, when we've had women up here teaching. And some people grow from an environment where women aren't supposed to teach. Because I read some Bible things that said this. And so inside of you, it's like, oh, they're not supposed to, right? But the Bible actually doesn't say that. It says things like that in certain circumstances. But that's not what the Bible teaches overall. But inside of us, it's like, oh, are we supposed to do that? I don't think we're supposed to do that. It's that thing that rises up inside of us. And we've made a decision based on what we've heard. And we've created, the Lord is no longer our rock. We've created these other edifices out of bricks and they've become our structure to help us from that instability. Um, in fact, we had a, um, I was surprised we had a, a, a Jewish rabbi come and teach and he is a follower of Jesus. And I remember people looking at him going, this is impossible. Like, the Jews, they're against us, right? And we're against them. Aren't we like on opposite sides? And aren't the Jews, don't they hate Jesus? And this messianic rabbi has to deal with that all the time. And so you could see people's minds just exploding, like poof. Like that's not, I thought this was the way it was. I was told my dad or my siblings or my neighbor told me this or my pastor or I read this or this book said this. And so we, we build this brick, brickology. We, we have this concept of the way life works. And a lot of it's true, but we have to get to the point where we realize, you know what, maybe some of that isn't from the Lord, and maybe we've gotten that from someone else. So what do we do with that? Because here's what Jesus said in Revelation 21.5. He said, I'm making all things new. And the Lord is in the habit of doing that over and over and over again, blowing people's minds. They think something's supposed to work this way, and then they have to deal with it going in a different direction. When Jesus and Peter and Paul said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is like our staple thing we repeat all the time. The word repent does not mean feel bad. Repent, repent. Like, oh, okay, I feel real bad about it. That's not what that means. The word repent, as we've discussed probably too many times, means change the way you think. 
change your mind. And so Jesus is saying, repent, change the way that you see things. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Acts chapter 10. So if you could open up there right now. And there's so many different places we could have gone. We could have gone to James. We could have gone uh, into Matthew. We could have gone to Acts 15. Um, There's so many places we could look at. But I want us to start here because, well, listen to one last quote from one of the studies. This is what it says. This is what they said about themselves. These believers talking about themselves said new ideas and different groups So new ideas and different groups, so different people. New ideas, different people threaten our stability. For if things are uncertain, then perhaps nothing can be counted on. And that's what happens to Peter and Cornelius here. They have rock-solid beliefs on how life works. They have clear understanding. They've built their world on this They've created it so that they have stability. And if you pull that out, then everything starts to shake and the instability comes and terror sets in. And that's what happens. So Cornelius is a Roman centurion and um, he's not mentioned outside. He hasn't shown up in the Bible story at this point, um, but he's up in a place called uh, Caesarea Philippi. And if you're wondering, it always helps to have a picture of what it looks like. Imagine like Malibu with a bay. It's beautiful. I've been there. It's like, oh, that's why the Romans chose this place, because it's awesome. And so this is a centurion. He's over at least 100 soldiers. He's kind of a big deal. And yet he's taken on the Jewish faith. So he's taken on the Jewish faith. He's very devout. He has his family involved in it. Uh, The people that serve in his house, they have the same faith. His children, he gives to the poor. He supports the church there. The Romans don't do that. This guy sticks out. And so... God sends an angel to talk to him. So if you're in Acts chapter 10, right there in the beginning, so sends an angel to speak with him. And right away, he says, look, we've heard you. We've heard your offerings. You need to go get this guy named Simon. He's down in Joppa. You need to send somebody to him. That's it. Nothing else. Just go and do that. Now, this guy's taking a big risk because he is sending some of his people down there, their job's up here, he's sending them down there to go find some guy named Peter. Now, Peter has, is going to take a huge risk. In fact, what's going to happen later is he's going to get busted for it. If you move forward to Acts chapter 11, he gets drilled by the rest of the people because they're like, wait, you're not supposed to do this. Acts chapter 11 says this. This is afterwards. This is after everything that I'm about to tell you is going to happen. So we're going fast forward to tell you how intense this is. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the other believers that were up there, they took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you shared a meal with them because you don't do that. That's something you're not supposed to do. You can't break that rule. There's something that that brick has been put in place. We've been doing that for centuries. The Jews do not interact with the Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who's not Jew, like Cornelius and his family. And so Cornelius sends his family down. And as, as they're coming down, this uh, two workers and a soldier, one of his favorite soldiers, they come down. And as this is happening, Peter is in Joppa. Joppa also, beautiful place. Um, it's right there. We've talked about it before. It's right there in front of this beach break. And I've actually got to go to this, the place where it was. The actual house is gone, but there's a little place where it was. There's a little plaque. It's like... 
that big. And it has a little scribble on it that says, yeah, this was Simon the Tanner's house. Like, it's not like a historical place. It doesn't have a big flag. They don't bring tourists through there. But there it is. This is the, the historical place they consider where Simon the Tanner, not Peter, but he stayed at this guy's house who tanned, and his name was also Simon. So they're here at this house, and he's hungry. Peter's like, you know, duh, he's normal. I'm hungry. So he's like, hey, can I have some food? Because he's staying over here because they've asked him to come over and um, heal this woman named Dorcas. Looking for a name for daughter? Dorcas. D-O-R-C-A-S. So she's here in Joppa. So he's staying. Simon's like, hey, stay at my house, Peter. Come on over here. So he stays over there at that house, asks for the food, and then goes up on the roof because that's what they do. It's like their porch. He goes up on the roof, and he's just kind of laying down, and then he has, it says he goes into a trance or a vision or a dream. We don't know exactly what that means, but God showed up. And Acts 10, verse 11, I want you to look at it. So if you, haven't, if you don't really have your Bibles in front of you, get it in front of you. Uh, Acts 10, 11 through 16. So he saw heaven opened. So as Peter's dreaming, having this vision, this trance, heaven opens and something like a large sheet, he doesn't know how to describe it, something like a sheet with four corners is lowered down. And it contains all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. If you go to Africa, you are going to see, and this is not just Africa, but many different places, many different countries in Africa, Asia, you're going to be traveling around and there's going to be kids on the side with these little skewers and they're going to have rats on there. And they're dead rats and they're not skinned and they've got the hair on them and they're like this and they're trying to sell them like churros. And people buy them. Except you are going to see that and go, never. That's never going to happen. Except imagine now that it's actually a rule in your church that you're not supposed to have that because it's unlawful. Because Moses shared, you shall not eat these things. You don't eat lizards. That's one of the rules. It's just, it's a rule that was in there and it's in the Bible. It's there. And so Peter's like, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean, which is another way to say, I've never eaten anything not kosher. Like, you know that word, right? And if you go to Israel, you go to McDonald's, they're going to have two separate kitchens because certain foods as part of kosher are not supposed to mix. You want a cheeseburger? Not going to happen because the cheese, the dairy, is not supposed to touch the meat. I know, blasphemous, right? But that's that's what kosher is. If you go to certain hotels, they'll say they're kosher hotels. You try to go, oh, I want to hang out in this hotel. You go to that hotel, they have two separate kitchens. And the, the utensils from one cannot go to the other. The plates from one come out from one, and they don't mix with the other ones. They don't mess around with this. They're that serious about their faith. So Peter has this dream, and it's from God saying, kill and eat. Basically, here's your lunch. And he's like, never. And listen to God's response. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This is the first time that he's ever said that this food is clean to Peter. Now, I don't think Peter goes on eating lizards from this point on because that's not the point. Remember who's coming down right now. 
Remember, who's coming down, he doesn't even know what's happening. But the Gentiles, the unclean, the impure, they might as well have been lowered down in the sheet. They're on their way, and he needs to be prepped for this. And this dude, Peter, is stubborn. And yet, God has set him aside as the person that would be the most influential person outside of Jesus to lead the church, him and Paul. But Peter is the leader. And so he comes to him. And how do we know he's so stubborn? Because this vision happened three times. Look anywhere in the Bible. Visions don't happen more than twice. It's happened once, happened twice. This is the only time where we've seen it happen three times. Why? Because this is radical. This isn't supposed to happen. This is the kind of thing where people kill you. So Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, and and at that moment, then these servants and the soldiers show up, boom, 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 and they go, hey, we're looking for a guy named Peter, does he live here, is he staying here, we're told, and we were sent, like, oh, yeah, he's right here. Now, I don't know why they let them talk, because if you saw Roman soldiers show up, you're probably going to go, oh, come on in, like, something's probably bad. So maybe they're afraid, but they, so as they're knocking on the door, or just prior, Peter was still thinking about the vision. The spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them because I have sent them. Why say this? Because they're impure. This is a rule that the Jews have. You don't eat with the Gentiles. You don't touch the Gentiles. You definitely don't marry them. You don't let them spend the night. You're separate from them. Now, in the Old Testament, it was set up so that the people of God, the people of Israel, would not take on the false idols and mix and take on all these other things. However, the leadership of the church at some point or another just started adding all these rules. So they added things on top of what God had said, added extra things, and so they just started adding these things like, you don't spend the night with Gentiles. Nowhere in the Bible. But they took that on. They started adding that in. And so, when Peter hears this, in his mind, just like that child of mine, well, that's who these people are. They're greedy. These people, these Gentiles, they're dirty. That's what he thought. Now, this is the man who's walked with Jesus for over three years, who is a leader, who has, this is who God's chosen, and he still thinks this way. Jesus said, I'm making all things new, including the way that Peter thinks. So they come, they knock on the door, and he says, uh, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And they go through the whole story. They explain everything about what happened to Cornelius in the dream. And then we jump down, oh, and then he asks him to spend the night. So now he's just getting nuts. Peter has, he's, he's heard the vision. He trusts it's from God because he says, why don't you guys spend the night? And you know that Simon the Tanner's like, what? Because Simon the Tanner's not a Gentile. They're all Jewish people around there. They're all circumcised. If you don't know what circumcised means, go ask Max afterwards. He'll describe that. We're not going to get into the detail of that, but you need to know what that means. So if you don't know what it means, you can catch up later by asking Max. He's right there in the back with a blue shirt, sunglasses up. He understands all about that. So um, in terms of this circumcision, it's a big deal because these are uncircumcised Gentiles. Because Gentiles are like, why would I ever do that? And so they're in the house. Simon's like, what? But they spend the night. Then they travel up the next day. It's like a day's journey at least. He goes back up. Verse 26 of chapter 10. 
And you can see it up here also, but I really want you to see it in your Bibles. This is what Peter says to Cornelius. Because he walks in, Cornelius is like, oh, falls to the ground. He's like, get up, I'm just a man. I'm just a man, stand up. So Cornelius stands up, and then this is what Peter says. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. You know this is our rule. This is the rock we've created. And the degree to which this is such a big deal for Peter, remember how we talked about that quote about stability and how we create these, this edifice, this structure around us to try to shrink things to keep us safer? We try to be in control to create this structure. You're from California, or you've been here long enough that many of you have experienced a destabilization. You had an earthquake. I've been through them a lot. Every single time it happens, terror strikes. Because the ground is not supposed to move, right? Like, it's supposed to stay where it's at. That's that's the rock, right? It's not supposed to move. And so when it moves, terror strikes up. And Peter is struck with all of his ground, all of the stability that he's known is being moved back and forth. And it is completely understandable that he would be freaked out and terrorized. But he says this, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. He's been doing that all the way up until this point. And so then he goes on to talk with Cornelius. And then he talks about the rock. And if you don't hear anything this morning, this is the rock. This is what we need to build our faith on. We talk about the essentials. We've talked about the Apostles' Creed. We're going to talk about this next week as well. I know we went through a whole series on it, but we're going to come back to it. Because this is our rock. This is our faith. And so Peter has a perfect opportunity here. He's facing Cornelius, one of the Roman leaders. Have you ever shared your faith with someone and they had other issues that you just knew needed to be dealt with and so you slipped those in? Well, you know, like, the Lord can do this, for example, in your marriage. Or maybe you know that they're doing something that's dishonest. For example, in the way that you're doing this. Or, you know, maybe it's a neighbor. You know, for example, the way your tree is hanging. Whatever you slip in, your little thing that you think they should do differently, you slip it in. He has a perfect opportunity to do that right now. Well, you know, this Jesus who was Jewish and not Roman is part of the people of Israel. And we as Israel are God's chosen people. And you've come into our land. You've kind of taken over. I know you're a leader. Maybe you should do something about that because he could have done all of that. But he doesn't touch on any of that, which is important stuff. It's not that it's not important, but he doesn't deal with it because he talks about the most important thing. He deals with the rock. And if you've never heard this before, if you've never lived in this, or maybe you think you've heard it, but you don't really, if this isn't everything your life is built on right now, if the rest of your day isn't scheduled after this, if what you're doing this week isn't scheduled after this, if the decisions you have for your kids for starting school isn't based on this, then you need to reorganize. Acts 10, starting in verse 34. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel. So at some way or another, he knows that Cornelius knows about the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So he's heard about this, but Cornelius doesn't have a faith 
in Jesus. He doesn't trust him. He may even believe there was Jesus, and maybe he could possibly be the Messiah, but he doesn't trust in him. But Peter says, this Jesus Christ who is Lord of all, you know what has happened throughout the providence of Judea, farther south, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now, Cornelius probably heard some of these stories. He's like, so these are true? But these are, I mean, come on. We've heard a lot of people saying good things, doing good things, even some people that have done healing. But then he says this. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. This is the rock. This is what everything we do is built on. Not all these other things, not who we've left in or left out, not on the ideas that we think belong to God and the ones that we don't. This is everything to us. And on this is the forgiveness of sins. And that's why Peter, in Acts 10.43, can look over at Cornelius, who has enslaved his entire people, and said, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. At this point, he's saying, you can be forgiven. You, my enemy, can also be forgiven because of what Jesus has done. You don't have to do this and then do this and then do that and then do this. Because of what Jesus has done, you're forgiven. Now, who are the people in your mind right now who are on the outside? Who are your... Cornelius's, who are your impure, your unclean that are on the outside that you would have a hard time saying this to? That if God sent you to them, you'd be like, oh Lord, please don't send me to that person. I mean, send me to that person. Send me to the greedy person, but don't send me to that person. I don't want to have, for whatever it is, whatever it is that's that burden you, like that, that stress. Or the idea that if God loved that person or forgave that person, it would shake your foundation and bring a little bit of terror to you. Peter said all this. He's given this sermon. And yet, in verse 47, he shares all this. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, he says later in um, chapter 15, he said the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Just like when the Holy Spirit came upon us the first time. Meaning, he's telling all the other apostles, remember when we were at Pentecost and everything got nuts and there were flames and tongues of fire and it was kind of like, whoa, the Lord just showed up? That's what happened with Cornelius and his family. It was exactly like that. So he, Peter sees this happening. God is moving. It's undeniable. And yet, he asks this question. He says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? Like, he's looking around because when he goes back up, he's up there with circumcised believers, and they are freaking out. If you look a couple verses after what I just said in verse 43, they're seeing the Holy Spirit come out, and they're like, what? Because in their mind, the ground is now shifting. This is not supposed to happen. These are the impure, the unclean. We were coming with Peter to talk him out of this because we knew once we got there, this wasn't going to be legitimate. That's pretty much what we expected because why in the world would God do something new? 
Like this has been centuries how we thought. There's no way. We believe that God thinks this. How could this possibly happen? And they get there and then everything starts to shift. Everything starts to move. And so he asks it as a question like, hey, I'm about to do this. Can anyone tell me why I shouldn't do this? And no one can speak up. Because God has been moving. So what do we do with this? How does this apply to us right now? Peter, later on in Acts, when we went forward to Acts 11, and they're all upset, like, how could you have done this? And so he goes through the whole story, explains everything. And then after he says it, in verse 17, he says, so if God gave them the same gift that he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And this is what the other leaders said. When they heard this, there was quiet. Because, of course, there's going to be a pause, like, okay. They had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, even to the non-Jews, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who is it that you're going to be shocked with when you see them in heaven? Who is it that you're going to be shocked? In fact, right now, you might be going, well, the person three rows behind me, two to the left, I can't believe that person's in here because they shouldn't be here. One of the things that we've talked about here at Branches often is that we are going to open up the gospel to everyone. And it's God's job to teach them, to grow them, to open them up. Um, Bill Clinton, but you didn't see me go in that direction, did you? Bill Clinton, I don't know if you ever heard about this, but one time when he was president, he was with this intern and did some stuff he shouldn't do. And then we all found out about it, and it was a big problem. And so right after that, they did a rally. Not sure why they did a rally, but of course, the Democrats had to like do a rally, so they did this rally. Now automatically, in fact, I was just thinking about this, didn't even think about this when I was preparing this. Some of you are like, so is Bill Republican or is he Democrat? I'm going to hear what he says to see where he stands because I'm going to put him in his little box where he fits and hopefully it's in my box because if not, I'm going to put him over there. It has nothing to do with that. But they have this rally and the reporters are there and they look over, all the seats are laid out, and there's Billy Graham. If you don't know who Billy Graham, in, he, Billy Graham is, he's pretty much the Peter of the Western church. He is looked to as a man of faith and pretty much along all the different lines of evangelical Protestant churches, they're like, he's a pretty big deal. We trust him. So these reporters look over at him. They know what Bill Clinton has done. They see Billy Graham. They're like, well, he's part of that faith. Like, what is he doing here supporting Bill Clinton? And so they run over their mics, and they're asking him questions. What are you, basic question is, why are you here? I mean, you know what he did, so why are you here? This response is one that needs to be hammered home to us. So much so that I've memorized it because I need it for myself. He says, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. And it's my job to love. That's all he said. That's his friend. Did he agree with what he was doing? No. Did he agree with maybe how he's approaching it? Don't know. Did he agree with the rally? Does it matter? He's there to be in his life because that's his job. That's our job. That's Peter's job here. 
These are my people. Cornelius is part of my people. Everyone is invited. You think he's impure. You think he's unclean. Get over there. Maybe it's your grandpa. You're like, that dirty old man did this, 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 and you've just cut him off. Now, I'm not saying to be in a relationship with someone that continues to hurt you. That's a separate thing we're talking about here. We're talking about those that you think are impure or unclean, or even ideas that they may hold that you think are impure or unclean. But your job is not to take the place of the Holy Spirit to convict. I'm a pastor. I'm up here. I hear all the time, wow, that was really powerful. I'm very convicted. You convicted me. I'm like, I hope not, because that's not my job. In fact, I don't come up here and think, okay, this is what's going on. I got to drill James. Because I know something James is doing. I'm going to hammer him this Sunday. The whole message, bam. Now, do those thoughts cross my mind? Yes, they do. Because I'm just like you. I want to take the Holy Spirit's job. And then in judging, I cannot believe this family's doing this, this greedy family. Well, we're going to talk about this this Sunday. No, because that's not my job. My job is to share the word of God, and I don't know where it's going to go. In fact, it's hilarious to hear some of the things that come back. You know what? Thanks so much for teaching on this. And I was like, did I teach on that? I didn't even know I brought that up because God, hopefully, is the one that's actually teaching this morning. It's his job to convict and to judge and to move and really to love as well. But our job is very simple. Our job is to love. And everything we do, it's to offer ourselves up to others for their benefit. That's what Billy Graham did. That's what Peter did. And part of that means being moldable. Moldable to people and to ideas. So let me close with this. The first things that, that we need to remember as Christians is that Jesus is in the business of changing us and changing this world. And if he's going to change it, then things need to actually change. And that means some of the ground that you have built around you that's not on the actual rock, but stuff that we've built, that you've heard from others or you've placed there to make yourself feel more secure or feel more encouraged or to feel like you're winning or whatever it is, that prejudice that's there in place is going to shift if you surrender everything to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm just gonna stand on this rock. Prepare to have your world rocked. Prepare to sweat, prepare to be angry, prepare to be frustrated, And the other thing is, is we're going to learn that God wants his church to reach out beyond its comfort zone to people that we would never think would be included into the body of Christ. But everyone is. It's not our job to get them clean before they come here because let's face it, we don't really know what clean looks like, do we? That's God's job. That doesn't mean that we don't have standards. It doesn't mean that we don't search in the word and go, God, what do you want to happen here? But it means that we go into the word. We don't say, you know what I was told, and it's in, no, we grab it, and we look at it ourselves and go, what are you calling me to? What are you calling me to? And then through that relationship and that friendship, I'll bet you Bill Clinton had a conversation with Billy. And I'll bet you Billy didn't say, Bill, we need to talk. I'll bet you Billy said, hey, I mean, they're both Billy, right? Bill <laughs> called Billy and probably said, we need to talk because he trusted him because they were friends, because they'd walked with each other, because he knew that Billy Graham had his best interests at heart, and he knew that Billy was a man of God. And I'll bet you that Billy didn't come and go, well, glad you asked. I'll bet he walked in and said, well, let's look at this together. Let's sit down and come before the Lord together. That's what we do. That's our job. Let's pray.
Father God, um, we come to you. And we want you to lead us. There are prejudices that I have that I have no idea I have them. There are ways that I look at people and the way I look at things and concepts and I attribute them to you. Thank you. And I'm willing and scared out of my mind, but willing to hand it over to you. I pray that you would give our church the courage to do that, the people, that we would seek you above all things. And Lord, if there is something from you that you would make it clear through your Holy Spirit, that it would move through all of us. And like Martin Luther, when it came to faith being what produces salvation, faith in you, Lord. And when he was questioned on that, he said, on this I will not and I cannot recant. Lord, if there's something that serious, we're, we're willing to take it on. And that scares us to death as well, to stand against the flow of society. But Lord, we, we trust in you. You're our rock. Mm-hmm. So we put all our chips in. In the name of Jesus, amen.